listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. So tonight we mark the seventh and final Sunday in Eastertide. Seems like an awful long time ago that we shouted those first alleluias. We sang, Christ the Lord is risen today, while Murray sort of drove us along on the pipe organ. We popped the cork from the bottle of sparkling wine. That, wow, that's kind of distant now. Because it is a long season, 50 days, making it even longer than Lent. And that's not incidental. This liturgical season follows a timeline that's set out by Luke, both in his gospel account and in the book of Acts. Remember, as Luke set things out, for 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to his followers, and then on that 40th day, he ascended to be with God. That was followed by 10 days of watching, waiting, and preparation on the part of the disciples and the others in their company. Then comes the day of Pentecost, the 50th day, when the Spirit of God came upon them in this whole new way. Now, that's the story that we'll tell next Sunday, which means that tonight finds us in a kind of an in-between, in those 10 days between Ascension Day and Pentecost. Ascension Day was Thursday, and some of us celebrated it at a a living room liturgy. The lectionary has us tell part of the story again, which we did tonight, where Luke tells in a, a really picturesque way the disciples' experience of Jesus going from them. Now, it's a picture that only completely works within an ancient worldview, in which the earth was understood to be static and unmoving. The heavens are above like a great dome. The heavens are up beyond the clouds. And in this story that Luke tells, it's almost as if in his resurrected life, this world, this earth, couldn't entirely contain this newly, vibrantly alive Jesus. And so he ascends. Now, we know that the earth is round and it's spinning, moving. The universe is almost unimaginably vast. And that up is relative to where on the globe you happen to be. Still, the image of ascension can speak. Because we, at some intuitive level, have this sense that up into the vastness of the heavens is to move into transcendence. Think about this. Leave the city. Drive out beyond the bright city lights that obscure the night sky. Stand out on a dock by the lake. Or maybe on the edge of an open prairie field. And look up into the clear night sky. Let yourself be dazzled by the stars, stars you never see in the city. 
and wonder at the vastness, the seeming endlessness of that sky. Ponder for a minute that some of the stars that you're seeing actually don't exist anymore. It's taken so long for the light to travel from where that star was to meet our eyes that in that time, in all those years, that star has burned itself out. I mean, that is an extraordinary thought. All we're seeing in some of those stars is an echo of what they once were. If ever there was an experience of being able to see wonder, mystery, vastness, transcendence, and at the same time to to be aware of your own smallness, that's one of them, to look into the sky like that. You stand with your neck craned and your eyes fixed on the sky, and there is something transcendent. So here, in this story, the disciples stand. Their necks are craned, fixed on the clouds. They have experienced a glimpse of wonder, of mystery, of transcendence, of holiness. Yet they cannot stay there in that space. No. As Luke tells his story, he writes of the appearance of two men in white robes. That's biblical code language for messengers, angelos, angels. And those two men come and say to them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward the heavens? It's kind of a funny question when you think about it. Like if you were one of them and you just experienced that, where else would you be looking, right, but up into the sky? And then the messengers say, This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Isn't that all the more reason to keep looking up at the sky, hoping maybe he'll come right back? But again, no, no, they can't just stay there with their necks craned. They can't stand in that posture and try to freeze that holy moment in time. This now marks the beginning of a a real transition for them from disciples, students, who, for all that they have tried, seem to have had quite an uncanny gift for not ever quite getting the point that Jesus was trying to drill into their heads. They're going to transition from that status as stumbling disciples and to being a people, a new people called to be witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, in Samaria, to the very ends of the earth. Their transition, though, is not one in which they are immediately charged to go out and be active. Just go and start now that you've seen it. No. As the theologian Matt Skinner observes, when the two messengers in robes, those angelic figures, call Jesus' cloud-gazing apostles back to their senses, they do not order them to get to work. Although there is urgency in the admonishment to stop staring slack-jawed into the sky, the moment's urgency does not result in immediate action. The first great act, Skinner continues, the first great act of the apostles occurs when they hike back to Jerusalem 
and wait. They're finally getting it right. Luke indicates that they've heard the promise of the coming of the Spirit, of the coming of the presence of God to them in a whole new way. And in response to hearing that promise, they finally get it right. They walk back to Jerusalem, and they spend those ten days devoting themselves to prayer, together with certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as his brothers. They have learned as a people together, not just the, this sort of privileged group of 11 disciples, but with the women and Mary and Jesus' brothers, they have learned that often you need to be before you can do. In a very real sense, and in keeping with the whole of Jesus' life and ministry, this subverts all conventional expectations that they would have this experience and then just wait. In his book, The Lord, Romano Gardini reflects on what might have been expected in a story of a a resurrection or a, a rebirth from death. What might have been expected in the context of a typical religion of the ancient Near East. What might have been expected in terms of a a tradition that was formed in myth and legend? What would those days have looked like, Gardini asked, those days after the resurrection and the days that unfold? What would those days have looked like? Doubtless, they would have been filled with demonstrations of the liberated one's power. The hunted one, now omnipotent, would have shattered his enemies He would have blazed from temple altars, would have covered his followers with honors, and in these and other ways would have fulfilled the longings of the oppressed. He would have initiated the disciples into the wonderful mysteries of heaven, would have revealed the future, the beginning and end of all things. But nothing of this occurs. What does occur is this. The resurrected Jesus comes and teaches his followers. He shares meals with them. He encourages and commissions them. He embraces Thomas even in his deep doubts. And in a story told in the final chapter of John's gospel, he offers to Peter a threefold reconciliation to counter that disciple's threefold denial on the night of the arrest. He does in his resurrection, in short, the sort of thing he had been doing with them all along. Shaping them, forming them, encouraging and challenging them. Keeping company with them in the breaking of bread or in the grilling of fish on a beach. For the most part, it is almost spectacularly unspectacular. His way with them is so simple. And after this one rather more spectacular, almost mystical experience of watching him ascend, the disciples and the others, they move into the decidedly unspectacular posture of simply waiting in openness and trust and prayer. They will in time begin to move. 
They will begin to do. That's launched when we tell next week's story from Acts. Yet when that happens, it is because their time of waiting, that posture of openness and being, has opened them to a whole new beginning. They are no longer the flailing characters of the Gospels who can't quite get it right, but instead have become apostles. Apostles with vision, with a passionate mission, a spirit-touched trust and strength. They will be unleashed into their world, embodying the subversive way of Jesus, this alternate way of Jesus. They will live that. They will embody it. But it all begins with this willingness in this story to wait, to pray, and to be. I really like William Willimon's thoughts on the significance of those two messengers in white who tell the disciples to stop gazing into the clouds. Willimon writes of those two messengers as being, quote, a reproof for any church which wistfully longs for some departed leader, as if the church were a mere memorial society for a dead Jesus. In this, Willimon has in view churches that have begun to forget, begun to forget that to gather for worship, however beautiful the music, However peaceful and restorative the service, however lovely the words of the liturgy, however literate or inspiring or well-crafted the sermon, to gather for worship is to prepare to be sent out into the rest of life. It is to be for a little short time in order to again learn to do. We in this community would do well to remember that and to keep it in view. Every time we gather here, there must be a real sense that we are, for this hour, echoing what those disciples did over their ten days between the Ascension and Pentecost. We are here to pray, to wait expectantly, to be, and only then to go out through those doors and to again try to do this faith. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.